there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. You always got to check the van. When you come out here, you check the van. Do we have gurneys? And are there sheets? Do we have body bags? Body bags. We have body bags. Regular and very large ones for decomposing remains. Trish Bubnis and her partner Mark Nagayo are investigators for the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office. When somebody calls 911 to report a death, Trish and Mark are the first responders who get called to pick up the body and figure out what happened. Right now, they're going out to investigate a possible overdose death. So as you're quickly learning, um, our vans are very noisy. <laughs> Just the gurneys rattling around back there? Yeah, pretty much. Trish and Mark say overdoses seem like they come in waves. They go a few days with nothing, then boom, all of a sudden three or four deaths in a matter of hours. A lot of those deaths are happening in the Tenderloin District, which is sort of like San Francisco's Skid Row. We pull up in front of a building that's housing for military veterans. We take an elevator up to the third floor and the cops are there. Trish and Mark open the door to the apartment and right away the smell of decomposition hits. There's a guy who looks like he weighs 300 pounds slumped over on his bed. He's been dead for three days. A syringe and a bindle. Trish and Mark look around the apartment for other evidence of drug use. The kitchen is a mess with dishes. The guy had a pet dog, which was locked in the apartment over the weekend, so there's piles of shit all over the floor. It's hard for Trish and Mark to maneuver, but they've done this a lot. While I stand in a corner trying not to touch anything, they tiptoe around the dog shit on the floor and get over to the guy's bed. Sort of roll him over onto his side. And then they roll the guy again into a body bag on a gurney. When they finish looking around for evidence, they wheel him out of the room. On their way out, somebody who works at the building drapes an American flag over the body in honor of the man's military service. Trish and Mark load him into the van. All right, on to the next. Saddle up. All right. Then we're off to another apartment just a few blocks away where someone else is overdosed. Back at the office, Trish tries calling the family of the veteran. Hi, my name is Trish. I'm an investigator with the city and county of San Francisco. This is an emergency phone call, and I need you to call back if you, in fact, are related to Timothy. 
hate leaving messages. Just want to get a hold of people. Are there any circumstances under which you would relay the information that someone's died over a message? No. I'm Keegan Hamilton, and this is Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis. Episode 8, A Way Out. My producer Jesse and I both live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Fentanyl arrived in the Bay Area later than most of the country. It started hitting the streets here a couple years ago, but in 2019, it was suddenly everywhere. Last year, overdoses more than doubled in San Francisco. Mostly, fentanyl's mixed into heroin, but users can never really be sure how much fentanyl they're getting. This, combined with the fact that the drug is so potent, makes it easy to overdose. Which is why the current addiction crisis has really been an overdose crisis. In 2018, more than 30,000 people died in the United States after taking synthetic opioids like fentanyl. No other drug has killed more people in a single year. In this episode, we're taking you to the Bay Area to meet people who are trying to save the lives of opioid users and the people who show up when they fail. And then the only other thing that I'll fill out now is the ID tag. We call it an ID tag because it sounds nicer. But it's a toe tag. We're at the medical examiner's office with Trish. Michael's taking another... Trish was a cop before hurting her back on the job. She herself was on painkillers for a while, but stopped when she got super into fitness and bodybuilding. This would be a hard job for anyone, and it's hard on Trish too, but she's tough. So when the third call of the day comes in, Less than an hour after the last one, she doesn't seem phased. She zips up her jacket and is ready to go. It's a body in public view, which means they have to hurry. We arrive at the scene, which is just three blocks from City Hall. We see a body in the street draped in a white sheet next to a beat up old RV. There are cop cars all over the place. Uh, On the sidewalk, a few feet away, is an older man crying. The call came in and she had a history of heroin use, but the people who called it in said that they didn't think she'd been using it today. But clearly something happened. I guess she lives in this RV. Trish goes inside the RV and looks around. got Narcan, you know, because you never know when you might need that. Narcan is a nasal spray that reverses overdoses. Basically, it blocks opioid receptors in your brain from absorbing more opioids. Glass pipe. She finds glass pipes and straws, which are used for meth or heroin. When she comes back out, she starts talking to the man on the sidewalk. He's the boyfriend of the woman who died. I know you're really upset, okay, and I'm very sorry, but it's really important that you answer my questions to the best of your ability, okay? She's just trying to find out what happened and make sure there was no foul play. 
That's her job. When's the last time she used heroin? And it's really important, I know, and her toxicology is going to tell me, so I just need you to be honest, okay? She did it every day. She's done it every day? Okay. Did she do it today? Oh, no. Okay. Has she been using fentanyl, as far as you no, know? No, no. That's all new because she was having problems. <laughs> she even said that to the doctor. Okay. She told her Okay, I, I know you're really I upset. Do me a favor, calm, calm down, take a big deep breath. Okay, I know. The boyfriend know. says the woman who died had a lot of health problems. The night before, she was having trouble breathing, so she checked herself into the ER, then checked herself out after a few hours. And when is the last time you saw her alive today? About? In the afternoon, she, we were sitting next to each other. I was giving her water. Okay. Then I, then I was tired. I was staying up with her all night. So okay. I care of her. Okay. I do it off when I woke up. I looked at her and I, I, she's not breathing. I was crazy. I okay. Was crazy. Are you the one who called 911? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> what okay. the fuck did I They pick up the body and are about to load it into the van when the boyfriend comes over. He wants to say goodbye. The cops move to stop him, but Trish says it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's fine, real quick. Okay. We found out later that the woman died from a combination of fentanyl, methamphetamine, morphine, and a benzodiazepine analog. She was 32 years old. It's almost like, you know, the second someone's calling and reporting a death, you're like, oh, which street is it going to be on? Oh, it's another drug death in the Tenderloin. Big surprise. Trish used to be a cop, and she's seen a lot of overdose deaths. She doesn't think much of harm reduction programs, which are becoming more popular in places like the Bronx and the Bay Area. Harm reduction is basically the idea that you can't control whether people are going to use, but you can provide stuff like sterile needles and other supplies to help them stay safe and alive. Do you like, have you started to dread getting those calls because you know that's what you're going to go out and find at the scene? I don't know if I dread them. It's just, you know, we, we kind of will go, oh, it's another drug death. I mean, it's, it's just one of those situations where um, no matter what kind of drug you're using, whether you're smoking meth or crack or you're shooting up with heroin or doing whatever it is you're doing with fentanyl because it can be, you know, taken in in so many different ways, all of those things are beyond harmful to your body. So if you're willing to do that, why does a clean needle or a clean craft pipe even matter? It really doesn't. And just like I said, when I, a lot of times I will go in these SROs and I'll find bags and bags of city um, provided needles. SROs are single occupancy rooms, like studios with shared bathrooms. You know, you have these people that they're using, they, they can't seem to get out of that rut, that bad habit, that un, unfortunate lifestyle that they're in. And okay, so now they, um, they OD, someone is able to administer Narcan. Do you really think they're not going to OD again? Probably not. I mean, maybe 
half a percent of people have some near-death experience and maybe change, but I highly doubt it. While reporting this series, we heard about HEPAC, an organization in the East Bay that promotes harm reduction. This is the approach to drug addiction that Trish is skeptical about. It focuses on trying to keep people as safe and healthy as possible while they use drugs. Directing traffic for HEPAC is Denise Lopez, an East Bay native in her late 30s who's one of the leaders. Like Oakland, has been having a drug problem for so long. And I haven't seen many documents or things where they're showing, you know, our folks, especially black and brown people. Now it's like a new trendy thing and, you know, it's a lot of uh, different people or white people who are dying, so it's like real fancy now. And everybody is like coming to the rescue and all the support. This isn't the first time we've heard this. From the South Bronx to Standing Rock, people of color keep saying they've been ignored or even demonized because of addiction in their communities. And we've been dying, you know what I'm saying? We've been dying, we've been going to jail, we've been having our families, you know, uh, broken. You know, we've been dealing with it. And it's just been, okay, you're gonna go to jail. You know, no treatment, no help. Denise grew up in the Bay Area in the 80s when the crack epidemic was exploding. And in some ways, it was like what's happening with fentanyl today. There was a lot of hysteria. People didn't know what to believe. Denise saw several of her family members become addicted to crack. Back then, she says she didn't have much sympathy for family members who use drugs. Now, she's more understanding. I'm like, you know what, you gonna use these drugs? I want you to be safe. You know, I want you to live your life. Denise has seen how the opioid crisis has changed since fentanyl hit California. In 2018, fentanyl-related deaths rose by 84%. One thing HEPAC does is pass out test strips so people can check whether or not the drugs they're using contain fentanyl. They have a tool to use and to determine whether or not they want to use the drug. It's been a really, really good thing and a good tool. And it's also been very sad because we've had a lot of people die. We've had a lot of people overdose and a lot of people die. From fentanyl? From fentanyl. From fentanyl. Give everything. Volunteers also give out Narcan. Today, a guy named Danny is standing at the end of the line, passing it out. Uh, I've been doing this for um, about like two years now. So I like my own agency. So this is kind of like my side hustle. During the week, Danny also hands out supplies at homeless encampments, and he invites us to go out with him. Homelessness is everywhere in the Bay Area. There are tents and campers on sidewalks and in parks. Obviously, not all people who are homeless use drugs. But for those who do, the high cost of living here can make it even harder to get back on their feet. Danny's a recent college grad. He's young, earnest. He studied public health at UC Berkeley. And when somebody from HEPAC came to a class to talk about harm reduction, he got inspired. There were some activist groups on campus, but he didn't think they did enough. Activism is just, I I just don't get the point of activism. Just do the thing. 
who are you trenches. raising the awareness for? For someone else to do it? Mm-hmm. I think it's all about grassroots. I think it's just saying, like, you know what? I can do something, and so I'm going to. Danny's a Christian, and he feels it's his duty to help people in need. So he decided to go out into homeless encampments and start handing out needles. So I ran him by um, a bunch of different people, like professors, and they're all like, nah, this is dumb. Don't, don't do that. Or like, like syringes, that's, like, that's a liability. You know, what if they stab somebody? What if they stab you? Today, Danny's brought boxes and boxes of differently sized syringes. He's also got chocolate bars, clean socks, and Narcan, which he shows us how to use. And then this is just giving them the naloxone spray, just putting up their nose, pressing down on it, just shooting it all the way in there. The way it shoots up there, it's not, um, it's not like a scent, it's like a jet. And so they can have like boogers in their nose, they can be upside down, they on their side, you don't need to move them around. You just put it in there, it's gonna shoot up in there. So where are we going now? We are going to Mosswood Park. Mosswood Park is about a 10 minute drive from where I live. I've brought my dog here. There's a big homeless encampment just on the other side of some trees, about a dozen tents. On the far side of the park are about 20 more. Slow down a little bit. <laughs> we go behind the dog park, down a path. This is super hidden back here. So if we sort of went back uh, into this little fenced off wooded area and it's a, a little gully kind of with a bunch of tents, bike parts, chairs, all kinds of just random shit. I see like kayak oars. Danny and his friend who's helping him out today start calling out to people. Points. Points. Points is slang for needles. There's trash everywhere, including discarded syringes. Danny asked us to wear closed-toed shoes today, and this is why. Some tents are set up near an oak tree. Danny points to a spot on the trunk of the tree. So we, this is our, the Narcan spot, so we usually um, staple Narcan here. Uh-huh. Uh, we didn't have it in the pouch, so we just put a box and it's gone. It looks like someone used it. So we're just gonna replace it with a new one. Danny has stapled a package of Narcan to the tree. It's right in the middle of the camp, so everybody knows where to find it. Sitting in a chair nearby is a white guy with a baseball cap and a goatee, smoking a joint. His name is Scott. He's 32 and has lived in this park for four years. All right, you're right. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, O-H-N-O. It's funny to me. Like, oh, no. <laughs> Scott is a graffiti artist. He shows us a sketchbook with some of his work. So we got some pretty classic wild style tag with a little like Jackson Pollock paint splatter background on it. We ask him if he's ever used any Narcan. Yeah, I've Narcan a lot of people. Uh, first time it was actually my wife and uh, we were doing China, like again, and that was one of the first few times we'd ever done like again, uh, like again anything other than like anything stronger than tar, you know, pretty much. And I could tell, like, as soon as I hit her, like again, I could tell that it was uh, that she was getting overdosing, like it's right away. As soon as I hit her, she pretty much just like slumped like over immediately, and like she's pretty much like within like fucking less than a minute, she was like completely blue and shit. But like she. She came out of it pretty quick. I used the vials and like we hit her with like two vials of Narcan and she came out pretty fast. Hey, can you get them? And then, uh, hey, hey guys. Any points? Oh, yes. Yeah. I guess so. I'm kind of limited, so I got 28s. I think I got like 1.9. 29. Those numbers indicate the different sizes of the needles. Katie, right? Yeah, yeah. 
While Danny's handing out syringes here, we meet a woman named Katie. Katie. I'm Keegan. Nice to meet you. She's in her late 20s and looks like she could play bass in a punk band, which she used to do. Today she's sick, so her nose is running a bit. She explains what happened to the Narcan Danny stapled to that tree the last time he was here. Katie and her friend bought some fentanyl from that guy Scott, the graffiti artist. When her friend overdosed, Scott gave him Narcan. At first, it didn't work. So we kept Narcanning him, and he wasn't... He kept making this, like, this, like, this, like, the sound with his mouth, like, kind of, like, snoring. And finally, he, like, we sit him up, and we see that he's breathing, actually, finally. Where did that Narcan come from? Um, I think him, because he put it on the tree. Katie points at Danny. He's the reason her friend is alive. I asked Danny how it feels to know he saved a life. It's really hard because, like, if I take that win, be like, oh, man, I did this great thing. Whenever I come back in like, a couple weeks, I find out that they used it and it didn't work or didn't have enough or they just didn't care or they just left them there, then that's going to that's, that's gonna be pretty rough. It's kind of dangerous to care. Yeah, that's one of the Christian things. Like, you have to always care. Like you, you, that's part of the rules. You have to care. And it's, yeah, it's... Sometimes these are too just emotionally and just numb yourself. You have to wonder why it's him doing this sort of work in the first place. Why isn't the city or the county or the state paying people to come out into these encampments to hand out syringes and Narcan? There is some public funding for harm reduction in Oakland, but it's relatively limited. So people like Danny have to step in and actually get out on the front lines. Harm reduction undeniably prevents a lot of deaths, but people like Trish, the medical examiner who sees overdoses every day, says it just enables users. Even in the Bay Area, which has some of the best harm reduction services in the country, a lot of people are still dying. Harm reduction on its own isn't going to solve the fentanyl problem. There have to be options for people who want to quit using illicit drugs entirely. And we found one that seems to work. Marshall Medical Cares, Lonnie J, MD. We're in Placerville, California, which is about three hours northeast of San Francisco in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. A long time ago, it was a gold rush town, and now it's a tourist stop on the way to Lake Tahoe. Dr. Lonnie J's specialty is treating opioid addiction. They like to laugh at me because I just have this make it work attitude and we're, we're gonna take care of the patients that are there in front of us. We're here because Dr. J's approach to addiction treatment is cutting edge. Take how many patients are still in treatment and recovery a month after ending up at the emergency room because of opioid use. Statewide, it's less than 10%. But at Dr. J's clinic, 82% of patients are still in treatment a month after they go to the emergency room. Right out of medical school, Dr. J moved to Placerville with her husband, who's from the area. At first, she was just planning to be a general practitioner, but she quickly realized that many of her patients were struggling with addiction. I made this move to do addiction medicine because there was nowhere to send my patients. So she got a grant and started her own addiction clinic, she wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to get treatment. Because drug rehab in America is usually a mess. There have been tons of cases of documented abuse and fraud in rehabs across the country. There are also a lot of for-profit facilities that lure new patients with seductive advertising. 
And guys, the problem is so serious in Florida that it's been nicknamed the Florida Shuffle, where patients are lured here for treatment. They go from one treatment center to another, creating a perpetual rehab industry. And then fail to deliver. In the last four years, the number of overdoses here has quadrupled as the treatment industry has exploded. More than 4,600 overdoses in Palm Beach County alone last year. And for the rehab programs that are genuinely trying to help, a lot of them make you check in for weeks at a time, which doesn't work if you have kids or a job that you can't put on hold. Dr. J's clinic is outpatient, which means people don't have to disrupt their lives to receive treatment. And she works closely with the local hospital. When someone overdoses and ends up in the ER, the hospital connects them to Dr. J immediately. So if somebody presents to RER at any point, 24-7, there is a provider that's trained to manage opioid withdrawal and opioid use disorder. And so they can receive medication right there in the ER, get out of withdrawal, and get sent to us for next day follow-up. So every morning, 9 o'clock, we keep one or many visits open for patients that were in the ER the day before to have next day access. This might seem like a small thing, but it can be the difference between someone getting help or not. In California, when a drug user ends up in the ER because of some drug-related issue, like they overdosed, half the time they get lost in the system and never start drug treatment. Because of the way Dr. J's model works, 97% of users who show up at the ER start rehab within a few days. Another issue is that a lot of programs make users go cold turkey, but that's not how this clinic works. The gold standard, the standard of care treatment for opioid use disorder is medication-assisted treatment. There's Suboxone or Buprenorphine. Suboxone and Buprenorphine are the same drug, an opioid that actually blocks the high from heroin or fentanyl. It also helps with cravings and withdrawal. So often, people struggling with opioid use disorder um, are in this cycle that's very detrimental to their lives, and they don't know how to get out. And this medication is a way out. But maybe the most unorthodox part of her approach is something more subtle. Dr. J tries to meet her patients wherever they're at. Sometimes people who are deep in addiction struggle with even basic things, like showing up to doctor's appointments on time. She gives an example of a patient who was homeless. There was d tons of dysfunction in his life, and he couldn't show up to clinic visits. And because of that, I, I did something very radical for primary care. I just said, show up whenever you can on Monday. And my front office staff was saying, what are you doing? You can't do that. If people are 10 minutes late for a clinic visit, they have to reschedule. I mean, there's... The man missed a few appointments, but Dr. J didn't kick him out of treatment. At some places, if you miss one appointment or relapse, you're kicked out. Instead, Dr. J let him keep coming back. He continued to take buprenorphine, stay off heroin, and have the opportunity to engage with us and find his way into treatment. And now... That was a year and a half ago. Now... He is not using any substances. He's stable um, in his recovery. He's showing up to work, and he's a very different person. Dr. J introduces us to two patients she's been treating for almost a year, a couple. They're nervous about people in their community finding out about their opioid use, so they ask us to call them Henry and Betty. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> 
Well, actually, um, I uh, have an ex-boyfriend, ex-fiancé, who was abusive. The ex was friends with Henry. And after Betty and the ex broke up, the ex came around to Betty's house. Henry showed up and helped her stay safe. And he found out, and he stayed around the house to kind of protect me and make sure he didn't come back. And um, we... I was there to visit the dog. To begin with. Really? And then we um, we just became friends over time, and we were both in a, kind of a down place and dark hole kind of sort of thing, and we just started to... Um, kindle our friendship, and then we became a boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Not too long into their relationship, they start using opioids together. It's a familiar story. At first it's painkillers, then it's heroin. Betty is a grade school teacher. She's on her summer break, and she wants to get sober before she goes back to school. So they try cold turkey. So we're just trying to wean it down to nothing, and then the, um, the symptoms would come, and it hit really hard. Um, you know, you're sweating from head to toe, fevers, chills, couldn't get out of bed. It doesn't work. They both relapse, which is a normal part of recovery. But Henry is still reluctant to get treatment. He had a bad experience at rehab before, where they tried to rush him through it. Their treatment was, you know, 14 days long, and you started taking Suboxone, and then would taper off in 14 days, and that just didn't work. It never worked. Betty has her own reasons to be nervous about getting treatment. She's worried that if her school finds out, she'll lose her job. But in the end, she tells her boss what's happening, and her employer is actually super supportive. They give her the number to Dr. J's clinic. She calls, and they tell her to come in right away. I barely remember it because I was so sick, but I just remember being really sick, and I remember Dr. J's smiling face (laughs) like an angel, and I just remember, um, you came to the right place. We can help you. We will come up with a plan. You're going to be okay. And, you know, this is, you know you're going to start feeling better after you take this. this Dr. J of- prescribes her buprenorphine. I remember taking it. I remember it tasted really gross. <laughs> I didn't like the taste of it. Um, um, but I remember... It was about six hours later or something like that. I immediately started feeling better. And um, my, you know, the, all the bad symptoms that I was having from withdrawing started to go away. And um, within three days, I want to say, I was fully functioning. Like I was able to like get up and, you know, get out of the door and, and, do and what I needed to do. Cravings, too. And, like we haven't used and the cravings were completely gone. Before long, Henry asked Dr. J to help him, too. Almost a year later, they're both happy and healthy. They haven't used heroin since Dr. J started treating them. They're still on buprenorphine, but they say the medicine is only part of the equation. It's also the counseling that Dr. J provides their clinic. Betty calls Dr. J her life coach. They talk about everything, Betty's job, her relationship with her family. They haven't really um, forgiven me for like what I did. Even though I didn't directly do anything to anybody, you know, I didn't do anything to anybody. I didn't steal from anybody. I didn't physically hurt anybody, but they didn't forgive me for becoming addicted. And it was like, well, you know, if you still think I'm a piece of crap, 
then why the hell am I doing this? She'll and get down on herself and think that she's this horrible person or something. And I say, you know. What would Dr. J say? That's right. what he says. What how how J- does Dr. J feel about you? What does she think about your, your, your progress so far? And, and, and why does what Dr. J thinks about you matter so much? Because she knows what she's talking about, and she helped me, and I'm 100% better. I'm better than I thought I could be, and she helped bring me there. Dr. J's methods aren't totally original. She's combining different strategies that other doctors are also using across the country. But less than half of addiction treatment facilities nationwide offer buprenorphine or other types of medication to their patients. In fact, 12-step programs actively discourage people from using medication-assisted treatment. There are other obstacles, too. Without grants and insurance, the treatment costs a lot of money. Basically, our healthcare system sucks at providing this type of care, even now, over two full decades into this opioid crisis. There's even a thing called the X waiver, which limits how many buprenorphine prescriptions a doctor can write since it's an opioid but there's no limitation on how many patients I can prescribe a full agonist opioid to. I can give fentanyl to um, a lot of patients out there. There's no limitation. Dr. J says buprenorphine should be treated like other life-saving medications. So we wouldn't let people go without their insulin. We wouldn't let them go without their heart medications. Um, And yet we're often very flippant about um, the significance of craving or the significance of withdrawal. We're very flippant about how serious that is. And yet that leads to overdose and death. There's no silver bullet. Addiction is complicated. The same treatment won't work for everyone. But methods like Dr. J's are helping a lot of people and she hopes they'll catch on. The coronavirus pandemic is putting an end to the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Body bags lining a hallway until they can be moved outside to temporary morgues. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment. The coronavirus pandemic has overshadowed the fentanyl crisis. But both of these issues point to the same problems with our country. The coronavirus and fentanyl were things we should have seen coming. And now that they're here, they're being blamed on someone else. In both cases, a lot of that blame has been on China. China is a very sophisticated country, and they could have contained it. They were either unable to or they chose not to. This claim that the Chinese should have done more to stop the virus from leaving their borders sounds a lot like they should have been doing more to stop fentanyl from being shipped through the mail to the U.S. Fentanyl, which is our new big scourge, it's uh, disgraceful what's happening, coming from different countries, including, frankly, China. It feels like Trump and some Americans don't want to take any responsibility for either catastrophe. It's like denying reality. Recently, I caught up with Mr. Yu, the fentanyl dealer we met in Shanghai. He said he was shocked to see on TV that Americans were walking around outside without wearing face masks. He asked me, how can they be so stupid? Then he offered to sell me N95 respirator masks. I guess Chinese fentanyl traffickers are adapting to this new world, just like everybody else.
The first step in a lot of rehab programs is admitting you have a problem. That's what America needs to do right now. We need to recognize that when it comes to the opioid crisis, we fucked up our response, and we're still fucking it up. The government has sent a lot of people to prison because of fentanyl, but things have only gotten worse. Chemists are already coming up with new synthetic opioids to get around the drug laws. It's a game of whack-a-mole that the DEA will never be able to win. So if we can admit that going after the supply doesn't work, how do we address the demand for opioids? We can start by trying to understand why people use and become addicted to drugs in the first place. Probably undealt with pain that they lived with their whole life, that they were numbing. Cold turkey is like, really, you're ill, you have pain all over your body. This is a very hard thing to do. I could not live with that pain anymore. Or as Brandon Hubbard, the dark web fentanyl dealer, put it. You know, you're going to do whatever you can to try to avoid pain or get relief from that pain. It's just instinct. Over and over, people told us about dealing with excruciating physical pain. And they also talked about emotional trauma. I remember walking into a room and I seen my mom with a thing to her nose and like a plate. This opioid epidemic, it started with folks who are like marginalized communities, right? So black, brown folks. There were ceilings falling. There was no heat and hot water in the winter. I think my people here on the reservation were already an oppressed people. Pain, in the largest sense of the word, physical and emotional. Americans go to incredible lengths to deal with it. And so far, we're doing a shitty job of helping them. More people in the U.S. are dealing with addiction than in any other developed country in the world. The good news is that we can break the cycle of addiction. I've seen it firsthand in my reporting for this podcast. It starts with more harm reduction, like what HEPAC is offering in Oakland, and better rehab, like what Dr. J is doing. But those aren't enough on their own. There's something uniquely American about this problem. To get out of this mess, we have to rethink how we treat each other, maybe even the way we live. Because until we change our entire approach to drugs, addiction, and healthcare, there will always be another fentanyl and another crisis. Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis is a Spotify original production in partnership with Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Keegan Hamilton. From Vice News, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Editing by Annie Aviles. Sound design and original scoring by Steve Bone with help from Pran Bandy. Kate Osborne and Annie Aviles are our executive producers. From Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Erica Clark. Supervising producer Jake Kleinberg. Associate producer Baron Farmer. Big thanks to Shirley Ramos, Sarah Gaynor, and Sam Walters. Steph Brown is our coordinating producer. Fact-checking by Lyle Cherniff. Additional consultation by Zach Siegel. Harp compositions are performed by Jackie Carrot. Painkiller website designed by The Ad Studio. 
lead designer Sean Finn, and interactive designer David Lopez. Graphic design by Sungpyo Hong and Anna Simoj. To see videos and photos from reporting and get even deeper into this story, check out the website at painkiller.vice.com. Production coordination by Nicole Huber and Veronique Heigobat. Security by Rami Galli and Sharbal Moore. Archival help from Leah Giussino. Thanks to everyone at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office, especially Luke Rada and Tom McDonald. At HEPAC, thanks to Loris Maddox and Bronze Corby. Also thanks to Kristen Marshall at the Dope Project in San Francisco for training us on Narcan. At Marshall Cares, thanks to Josh Clark and Ariana Sampson. At Lawrence Livermore National Lab, thanks to Steve Wampler and Dr. Carlos Valdez. And at UC San Francisco, thanks to Dr. Dan Ciccaroni. Thanks also to Dr. Andrew Stolbach and Dr. Ryan Marino for information about the toxicology of fentanyl. And lastly, thanks to everyone who helped out in some way with this series. We met so many people while making this thing that we can't possibly thank everyone individually. But if you spoke to us or helped us track down some information, thank you. If you're struggling with drug addiction and want to get help, call SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357 or visit findtreatment.gov. Thanks for listening.